Hi, Bat Chat Faithful. Uh, it's Matt and Will here. I'm adding a little bit before the episode starts this week for uh, a trigger warning. Usually we put those into the episode proper for the stories, but as you have probably figured out if you've listened to the show before, we record these about a month out. And if there was a way for me to shift an episode, I probably would have moved this one a little later. But because of the rankings, we've got to kind of keep them in order. One of the stories that we're discussing in this week's show is the crossover War Games, which has as part of its main plot a school shooting, which is never something that isn't triggering, but after the past couple of weeks seems considerably more so. So we wanted to let everybody know up front and understand if you want to skip this episode or skip the first two thirds of it. We don't talk about it a lot in there, but it has to come up because of how key it is as a story element. I couldn't edit around it. But yeah, uh, we wanted to let that out there up front. Uh, Will, you had some things you wanted to add as well. I've been toying with saying something about the Uvalde shooting uh, on the podcast. It's it's strange bringing real world events into the show since we record so far in advance. But I was really struck by something. I run on a uh, on a greenway here in town, and there's a church near the greenway, um, a Presbyterian church on the corner, and they set up a display, and it's uh, empty chairs. It's uh, two big wooden chairs and 19 very small ones. And I was just struck when I saw it. Those chairs are so small, man. They're so small. And this is the second time in 10 years that we've had such a terrible thing in an elementary school. And I just, I think I, I speak for everybody with a heart and say that we have to do something. But this country is so broken. I just, I have no faith of, of anything changing of, or, or anything of substance happening. But I have thought a lot about those chairs uh, since the first time I saw that display. And uh, for all of you that are sad out there, for all of you who are hurting, for all of you who are dismayed at the fact that our system is so, so fundamentally flawed that politicians and special interest groups and gun lovers and gun buyers and gun sellers uh, have more to say about this issue than parents. I... I don't know what to say anymore. So thank you for listening. Hi, everyone. Matt again with one final pre-show note. We reached out to our guest tonight, Joshua Wheel, and he wanted to add that he said in the episode that he'd appreciated the school shooting sequence, and he wanted to point out that it was specifically not the glorification of exploitation of gun violence in schools, but the gravity of the trauma it imparts on the young people who are subject to it. Josh is a high school teacher, so he can speak far more cogently to gun violence in schools than either Will or I can. So we wanted to absolutely allow him to make that statement. Uh, we also wanted to add that after we recorded that initial introduction, we decided that all Patreon dollars that come in July 1st will be going to the Violence Policy Center, 
a charity dedicated to working towards the end of gun violence in America. This is a major issue for this country. It is something that we feel strongly about. And so if you haven't donated to the Patreon, this might be a good month to do it. Join before the end of June, listen to all the bonus material, your money will go to charity, and then choose if you want to stay on or drop. We'd completely understand. But this is a small thing we can do to work towards stopping an issue that is far beyond anything either of us can deal with on our own. Anyway, after all that heaviness, I hope everyone enjoys the episode, and we'll talk to you again soon. Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast. Where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big old list. That's creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. How you doing tonight, Will? Oh, I am 30 minutes late to my own goddamn podcast, Matt. Uh, but other than that, I'm doing great. As I said in our intense uh, production meeting beforehand bar trivia is my one weakness at least i have the good common decency to drop a note in the slack to matt ahead of time hey i might be late i got caught up in bar trivia as 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 if i'm some kind of innocent participant in this but i'm happy to say my team won i was integral to victory one of our final round questions this third longest river in america runs through alaska I have no clue, right? Right? And I'm just like, just fucking write Yukon. I have no other idea. That sounds like something that could be right. And God damn it, if it wasn't right, key to victory. I couldn't remember the third uh, Charlie's Angel aside from Lucy Liu and Drew Barrymore. Cameron Diaz was the correct answer. Cameron Diaz dated Justin Timberlake, apparently, uh, which was the question. But... I pulled that geography question out of my ass, got us into the tiebreaker, and we won. But anyway, no one listening cares a goddamn thing about that. I'm ready. I'm happy. Let's talk some Batman. Fortunately, well, you might have been a little late. We have a guest tonight who spent some time chatting Batman with me, because this week we have a returning guest. Our Dick Grayson tierbacker, Joshua Wheel, has returned, and he's brought us quite a tale to talk. But first, how's it going tonight, Josh? Fantastic. Happy to be back. Thank you so much for, for letting me come back on after the first time. Thank you so much for your continuing support of our Insane Vanity Project. <laughs> it's our pleasure. We're happy to have you. We are indeed. This is uh, so much fun. This is my favorite ridiculous way to waste my money. So We appreciate that. Because <laughs> this week, Josh wanted to talk about the early aughts crossover War Games. So we're hitting that entire epic, plus a couple one-offs about the gangs and criminal elements of Gotham. Okay, everybody, you're going to buckle in here, because this is this is a 25-part crossover. So I'm going to just... The, the credits here are going to be kind of wild. So War Games... All right, uh, I'm going to take welcome. a timeout. So uh, you, just, you just whistle or something when you're done, Matt. 
Yeah, that's right. You take a drink of water, get ready, and let's hear it. All right. Poor games ran in Batman, the 12 cent adventure number one, Detective Comics, volume one, numbers 797 to 799, Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 182 to 184, Nightwing, volume two, numbers 96 to 98, Batman Gotham Knights, numbers 56 to 58, Robin, volume two, numbers 129 to 131, Batgirl, volume one, numbers 55 to 57. Catwoman Volume 3, numbers 34 to 36, and Batman Volume 1, numbers 631 to 633. The writers... Josh is pulling out all of the floppies right now. The writers included Devin Grayson, Anderson Gabrich, A.J. Lieberman, Bill Willingham, Dylan Horrocks, and Ed Brubaker. Pencils by Ramon Box, Pete Woods, Sean Phillips, Brad Walker, Mike Lilly, Al Barrio Nuevo, Javier Pena, Giuseppe Comancoli, John Proctor, Tom Derenick, Mike Huddleston, Paul Glacey, and Kinsun Lowe. Inks by Raul Fernandez, Rodney Ramos, Nathan Massengill, Cam Smith, Troy Nixie, Andy Owens, Sean Phillips, Francis Portella, Lorenzo Ruggiero, Robert Campanella, Jesse Delperdang, Jimmy Palmiotti, Aaron Saud, and Adam DeCrocker. Colors by Steve Bucoletto, Jason Wright, Javier Rodriguez, Gregory Wright, Brad Anderson, Guy Major, Laurie Cronenberg, and Tony Avina. Letters by Rob Lee, Pat Brousseau, Jared K. Fletcher, Clem Robbins, Phil Balsman, Nick Jaden Napolitano, Ken Lopez. And edited by Matt Idelson, Nachi Castro, Bob Shrek, and Michael Wright. Cover date of October to December of 2004. Oh, boy. I practiced that. <laughs> Very nice As always, Matt picks up the hard things for this podcast. I just come here late and fuck around. I will say, I read this in the collected trade question mark. And these were some tomes. These uh, is two books, War Games Part 1, War Games Part 2. And it collects a lot of shit. So... I believe I read extra. I'm okay with that. I feel like none of my time was wasted in that endeavor, but this is a big fucking story uh, over a lot of books. And before we go any farther, I want to figure out who to blame for this. Twitter says, and I, I, I didn't bother to Google this. Twitter says that this thing was orchestrated by Willingham. Matt, what's your, what's your verdict on that? That, it strikes me as odd only because Willingham wasn't on Batman that long. Uh, this strikes me as editorial fiat. We'll, we'll get to that because there is some stuff on Wikipedia about where some of this came from. And I think Willingham probably might have been the lead, the lead writer in the, the metaphoric writer's room. But I think the concepts came from editorial. Before we get any deeper into that, I do need to give the synopsis because there are people out there who didn't read all 25 parts of this crossover. In the summer heat of Gotham City, a spark has been lit. A meeting has gone wrong. Many are dead. And now every mob, gang, and villain is on the streets, which flow red with blood. Can Batman and the Bat family stop this? What caused it? And who is behind the scenes, hoping to use the chaos to forward his own plans? So I'll, I'll tell you how we got here. How did we get here, Josh? Partly because I had COVID back in January. I'm going to blame some of this on COVID. When I was out and, you know, 
on my ass with COVID in January. I um, was digging through for some back issue stretches, you know, old back issues I had picked up that I hadn't read or couldn't remember if I'd read or whatever. And I had grabbed some of the um, the Gabrick detective because I'm like, oh, that has that's the Stephanie Robin stuff. I want to read some Stephanie Robin stuff. And so I read through what I had and and I was like, all right, let me see. I called my LCS and I, I asked, like, do you have like the next issues? And they looked and they said, yes. And now my dumbass, I have the Internet, like I have Google. Google exists. But I didn't look up what the next issues were. I was just like, cool. I'm like, you know what? Just put them in with my stuff. And, you know, my wife's going to come pick up some more books for me. And so they get here and I'm like, oh, fuck. I got to like parts one and nine of like I had them send me parts one and nine of a 24 part stupid thing. So I read part one and I was like, this is actually like a pretty good start to a story like this. This starts off pretty strong. I dug through the boxes and I had like four or five of the first act actually just randomly in back issues I happened to have and didn't even realize. So I read some more and then I went out and once I was COVID free, hunted down like the other 83 issues. And here we are because I had to talk about it with someone. Well, Ta-da. as we usually start when we're starting with this kind of thing, with a list of creators that long, you're going to get at least one problematic creator watch in here. And the one for this is Bill Willingham, writer at this juncture on Batman and Robin. Not the single comic Batman and Robin, but the Batman title and the Robin title. Willingham is an arch conservative. He is one of the leading conservative voices in comics. He's noted for being anti-abortion and pro-gun. And he has written for Breitbart, which just tells you everything you need to know. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, oh and uh, he um, takes every opportunity to be anti-union, too. Oh, I didn't, that in there. didn't I, I missed that in my research. Great. Another another gem. I might be confusing him with Chuck Dixon. There was remember like one of the key mob figures in here is a union guy so that is true aquista is the mob union guy this is probably too long by about at least a third if not a half this it's not always bad long like the first act and so i i think it's fair to say that like as this story and and i had Fought, you wanted to break it up into acts and I had fought to keep it all as one story for this because in some way like the first act is not really like its own complete story like there this this doesn't break as easy as some of the other long Batman stories like you know we were talking about in the green room like Nightfall or um, No Man's Land or things like that but some of the parts in act one that stretch out I thought were really good in, you know, what the depth that they were adding and what they were doing as they stretched it out. Now it does not maintain that. So the, you know, there are some parts where, you know, it, it works, but yeah, I have very few stories need to be 24 issues. I wish this had been handled. I don't think anyone's ever going to say this about anything else ever. I wish this had been handled the way Marvel handled onslaught. Onslaught had the, this concept. There were books that were phase and there were books that were impact. 
the phase parts of onslaught were the the spine of the story the impact parts of onslaught were how onslaught was affecting other aspects of the marvel universe if you could have read this crossover and read across the four batman titles and probably robin and that was the spine of the story and you didn't need to read nightwing catwoman or batgirl to get the entire story those would have been just other stories of the gang war this would have felt smoother but instead you had to insert one little bit of the main plot into every book i was gonna ask for will when you read this in trade so recently i read um the Bruce Wayne murderer in trade. And one of the things I noticed that I was a little disappointed by was that it was a clearly a bridge trade. Like I'd get to like an issue of Robin and it would be like two pages long and then it would start the next issue because it was only giving like the two pages of the Robin issue that actually had anything to do with the Bruce Wayne murderer story. Were all of the issues like a full 2022 pages in yours or or were you getting like- uh, they- they sure as shit was because in total this was about 1100 pages i read the first uh 900 i got to war games epilogue and i got to bruce kind of hashing things out with alfred and dick and i was like this is a good spot to end it but that trade continues to go on for another 130 160 pages after that war crimes um, that is war yeah. crimes the follow-up yeah which yeah. we will cover someday in an episode that i like to call stories that matt actively hates oh dear but the yeah trade, I, I think adds in the oversized detective 800 as well probably it? which which is like 80 to 100 pages on its own so yeah, I got uh, I got everything in this story. But uh, going back to your point, Matt, in that like this thing crossed over so many books, the thing that struck me as weird is that in a lot of these individual books, you got them basically affecting this big main story. Like this story doesn't touch on the death of Blockbuster, but in every single Nightwing issue, it is fuck i just killed blockbuster what is bruce gonna think about that and that totally detracts from the central point of this story it's also okay so i'm gonna read a little bit from the wikipedia page now granted this is wikipedia so take what is said here as a grain of salt but at the 2011 auckland writers and readers festival former batgirl writer dylan horrocks said that the writers were told by editorial that the crossover would be involve some kind of gang war in Gotham and involve Stephanie's death. Her debut as Robin was, according to the story, purely as a trick to play on the readers that we would fool them into thinking that the big event was that Stephanie Brown would become Robin, but we knew all along it was a temporary thing and she was then going to die at the end of this crossover. Both Horrocks and Nightwing writer Devin Grayson opposed the move during planning to the extent that Horrocks deliberately kept Batgirl out of several key events in the story. It strikes me as Devin Grayson probably did the same thing. Also, she was in the middle of a big plot involving Nightwing and Tarantula at the time. And she was probably told, yeah, you've got to be involved in this crossover. We don't care what you're doing right now. Because Tarantula shoots Blockbuster in the head while Dick just stands there 
in Nightwing 93. So that was only a few months before. And Dick was still like completely fucked up by that. So this just took what was going on in Nightwing's book and put it on hold to deal with this crossover. I want to say in terms of as we're looking at, especially if we're talking about the four main and the four side titles, the four bad titles, and then the four supporting, some of these things, like I really enjoyed the way the Nightwing story particularly kind of, I thought enriched it. I thought that Nightwing coming back and Tarantula following him and being there, and then the effect that that has caused an effect like, and now we have this whole fuck thing here that I thought it kind of played and added to the madness nicely. And in terms of the Catwoman stories, you know, while the first Catwoman story was essential to it, the the first Catwoman issue, the other two were not, but they were still written by Ed Brubaker, which made them fucking awesome. So <laughs> oh, no, the best parts of this book were the ones that probably had the least to do with the crossover. The Batgirl ones were all fairly standalone and had great art between Sean Phillips and Mike Huddleston. Latter-day Paul Glacey doesn't necessarily work for me as well as his Master of Kung Fu or his Early Legends of the Dark Knight, but the Brubaker scripts are great. And that last Nightwing issue, which is also Sean Phillips, Phillips drawing Nightwing fighting Firefly is incredible. I mean, you can put Sean Phillips on anything and I'd love it. But this is a weird period for the ongoing Bat titles. Batman is in this weird sort of holding pattern because for a while there, Batman became the sort of prestige focus book because you had Hush and then you had Broken City from Azzarello and Rizzo. And then it seemed like there were a bunch of fill-in arcs until Judd Winnick took over with Under the Hood after this. Anderson Gabrich's Detective Comics is good, but it's not anything anybody remembers. Legends of the Dark Knight was sort of on its downward slope towards the end. And Gotham Knights was pretty much the Hush and Prometheus show for the back end of its run. And mm. Was was Gabrich responsible for the run up to War Games? Like uh, again, part of the extra reading I did yes. with was he responsible for the 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 story arc with the, the pop star who you know basically stole her daughter's baby? Was that it? It's been a while. I think Gabrich. Yeah, Gabrich was writing all those the Stephanie Brown as Robin Batman detective comics issues that story was real problematic as i was reading it but i understand it wasn't it wasn't core to war games but it was included in this trade it was real bad there was uh there was one scene in which batman corrected grammar from the uh the black men that he was assaulting which was not good we're gonna jump ahead for a minute just because because you just mentioned something like that I don't think we ever need to see black mask and blackface again, ever. No, Mm-mm. that that was the point. So I remember, I think it was I had finished the Robin 129. So issue five of this, which is probably my favorite issue of the whole thing. Either the the Robin issue or the Catwoman issue from the act one are, are probably my two favorite issues and um, parts of the story going out. 
but the the school shooting one with Tim Drake there was so intense. And, you know, while, you know, yes, we're dealing with very sensitive issues, I thought that, I don't know, I, I thought that it was a, a really good way of just kind of illustrating Tim and kind of the struggle he was in because the shit was leaking everywhere that, you know, it was coming into his world. And I had messaged you about this where, you know, I was like, you know, this is a big story that like no one really ever talks about. Like it doesn't get brought up a lot. I'm like, but I'm really enjoying the first act. And you're like, yeah, like the first act is not that, you know, but it's going to get to a point. I won't spoil it for you. And um, black mask putting on blackface was the point for sure. That was the thing that happened. Yep. That the horror movie, you know, like let's kill the principal black character in this title. Let's just kill him. And the way black mask is written between the rampant misogyny and the unpleasant comments he's making to a 16 year old girl and to some of the racist comments he's making to Orpheus's corpse. Mm-hmm. The only reason he's a character that we can still use is that nobody remembers this crossover. So nobody remembers what a horrible character he is here. This this feels like because it's such a fine line, especially in comics and with some of so many of the problematic creators between illustrating bad traits to show you that it's a bad character and illustrating bad traits because creator wants to be able to say bad things and so i'll put them in the mouth of this character and you can hate him instead of me um and this dance is questionably on the latter side because oh yeah yeah. i think at one point when he and god help me and i I can't no i can't even say it i'm I'm not even going to say the the thing that black mask says to orpheus's corpse but it's like Oh my God, you cannot say that. You couldn't say that in 2000. You can't say that now. You couldn't say that in 2004. You couldn't have said that in 1994. You're using freaking, you know, dialogue, dialect from the 1930s racist. Oh my God, why are you doing this? Oh, because you- That's going to have a conniption, folks. When I was talking earlier to, to, today with fellow Comics XF uh, writer Armand Babu, he made some comment. Of, he told him we were doing this story, and I was like, and he's like, "Well, I'm glad that I'm gonna not have to read it. I just have to listen to you talk about it." And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm not scowling at you." And he's like, "Oh, I, I'll just picture you with that look the entire time." It's like either that or maddened frustration. That's the look I have right now. So I, I want to take a step back, and obviously, there's some. Yeah, there's some micro problems, but I, I mean, macro, and this really gets at what you were reading, like of reading from Wikipedia, like this takes that Stephanie Brown character and just takes a big steamer on it. Like this is, this is just some bad stuff. The whole idea behind this story is that Stephanie Brown wants to prove herself to Batman. So she logs into the bat computer finds one of Batman's contingency plans, a contingency plan that's designed to install him as the head of Gotham's gangs. 
And she puts the plan into motion without knowing that Matches Malone is a central figure in this plan. And so she anticipates that Matches is going to show up to this big gang fight or this gang meet that turns into a gang fight. And like the whole time, like the story is just preoccupied with saying that uh, Stephanie wasn't ready. Stephanie's bad. Like Stephanie didn't deserve to be Robin. And then we're supposed to have this big emotional moment when, when she dies as, you know, as the, the story explains, Oh, it's of course it's a retcon later, but it's just like from it's very conception at the core. I think this is a rotten story. Uh, and then also the title, right? It's not really a war game. It was a plan, an idea, a thought experiment, but a war game involves like more than just one person, like, thinking about this stuff this is this is batman colon thought experiment it's not a war game i liked the way that it was revealed like because i had to sit with it i was initially upset now i think that the best possible delivery of the spoiler being responsible for war games in act one is that brubaker wrote it because if it was in any other issue i don't think it would have been as good but the way Brubaker wrote it, where we get Selena as us, as the point of view character learning about it at the same time, a post-hush Selena who has this unique relationship with Bruce where she's just looking at Stephanie who in a lot of ways, like this was different levels of Bruce mistake. Was Stephanie ready for all of this? Did she need more training? Like there is some truth to it. You know, but I still love Stephanie as a character. Didn't want this for her. Disappointed, but also I'm a high school teacher. So like when you tell me that like a teenager did a stupid thing, it's not a hard sell. I, I'll, I'll buy that most days of the week. But the Selena response of just being like, for fuck's sake, Bruce, you gave this kid computer access and didn't tell her who matches Malone was. How are you so smart and so stupid? Like the Selena reaction to it God, you're so bad with kids. Like, why do you keep adopting kids when you're so bad with kids? Like, she has this reaction to it in there that I thought really helped you kind of split the blame between Stephanie for doing an impetuous teenage thing and Bruce for just handling her so poorly in the lead up to this. Bruce is in rare jerk ass form here. Yeah. Everyone is off oracle is catty and put upon nightwing is howdy yeah tim is torn selena is probably in the best mental space of anybody and cassandra and this can be argued this is the run-up to infinite crisis so all of this could be argued as the stuff that's going on due to identity crisis and bruce sort of recovering these memories that the Justice League have been strewing with his head is starting to affect him. But I don't think that was planned because I think this is still before that actually became a thing. Bruce Wayne Fugitive, because I mentioned I'd read Murder not too long ago. Bruce Wayne Fugitive, which was another very, very, very long story, um, was not too far before this, was it? Like, so, I mean, he was very pouty and more non-communicative than usual and, you know, pissing the whole Bat family off in that story too. This was a recurring theme for years in the Bat titles where Bruce would 
get more and more closed off. And then he'd realize he'd need help and he'd invite the family back in. And then it would happen over and over again. It happened in Nightfall. It happened. Nightfall was kind of the first major instance, but Murder of Fugitive is a good example. No Man's Land. It happens in No Man's Land. It happens in Murder of Fugitive. It happens here. And then we don't really see it for a while because Morrison doesn't spend a lot of time dealing with much of the Bat family. Because Morrison's a good writer. Right. Exactly. Uh And then the most recent example of it really is in Tom King's run. But even then, it turns out it's a feint that Bruce had sort of set the whole thing up, but not really. And I'm never quite sure if King intended that or if it was just, okay, I've got 15 fewer issues than I intended, so I need to wrap this thing up. And then there's the whole Leslie Tompkins plot here with Leslie growing more and more disenchanted with Bruce, which I think was a good concept that wasn't given enough time to grow all it does is make leslie look like a mom who's scolding her kid at every turn and so if we're going to talk about like inexcusable crimes of this and while you know all of the black mass stuff is definitely up there when you write something that's in the thousands of pages and 24 issues but parts of your story don't have enough time to grow that's a big problem and, and I, I, I kind of mentioned, I have this in my notes too. Um, you know, Will had said this earlier that, you know, the Stephanie death at the end of the final issue of act three doesn't land or hit right. And it is oddly rushed in something that had so many pages in where, you know, the school shooting stretched out over say five, if not six issues of this. Some of these things were stretched out and took place over so many pages. And then for something as major as some of these scenes, Leslie Thompson, who is really getting put upon in this to not really be given time for her own agency or to develop for the Stephanie scene at the end to just kind of happen so quickly. Those just felt like very poor uses of space and pacing. This story, I think more than anything else we have ever covered on this show, is so decompressed. I want to say that this takes place over 36 hours real time, question mark? A little more, but not by much. Maybe 56. I think there's two nights. So the first night when the, the shooting happens... The, the, the mob war. Then the second night where the curfew comes down and there's the, uh, the blackout. Then there's the day where things get prepared. And then the final night where Black Mask leads the raid on the tower. So yeah. 48 to 56. Let's say that. And that, that is a ridiculous span of time for again something like a thousand pages it's so many issues it's kind of like a, the early seasons of 24 where you're not supposed to think exactly. about when people sleep or pee I, i'm watching 24 right now with uh with abigail and yeah this definitely has some of those vibes like you get especially with the school shooting it feels like 
a real time following the situation. And in some places that works, and, but in a lot of places, it just doesn't. And you're like, okay, let's, let's wrap up this sixth or seventh consecutive action scene. Let's skip this. Uh, this is the first time I've ever said this in a DC book. Let's skip this, re, uh, this recap page from the, the TV talking head who has this inexplicable turn against Batman. Let's move this thing along. Let's get some real events aside from, you know, just this action stuff. And there's inconsistencies. Like there's things that editorial miss. Because at one point, Selena seems to know that Holly and Karen lost spoiler. And then there has a whole scene where they tell her, it's like, wait, were these out of, was this supposed to take place before that? Or was there just a miscommunication? And then one thing I love, the first two halves of two thirds, or two halves, first two thirds of this run Detective, Legends, Nightwing, Gotham Knights, Robin, Batgirl, Catwoman, Batman. And for the final act, for some reason, Robin and Gotham Knights just switch places in the reading order. And it's like, why did the crossover suddenly need to go in a different order? That's an odd moment. And one thing that bugged me in the trades, the first book will tell you like which, which book you're reading. So you'll get to this break and it's like, oh, it's Robin number 126. The second book, you got no clue what you're reading. Aside from the, uh, the, the title page with, you know, all 20 of them spelled out. I will say in terms of like organization of this, one of my editorial criticisms on this is art inconsistencies are going to happen. I thought the coloring inconsistencies were a little more disruptive and I know that we've seen modernly, particularly over in like the X office where for crossovers or things, you know, really trying to hone in and have either one colorist or one colorist setting the palette that all the other colorists will use as the thing now. But there were some of these where we had issue to issue switches, like going from tech to Legends of the Dark Knight. And the palettes were so drastically different where like Will had mentioned decompressed storytelling, like we're in the same damn place and it's colored so wildly different. Like I felt like that's the type of thing editorially where, I mean, that doesn't go to the writing or anything else. Like, you know, you're getting these pages in and you're not having a team of colorists share palettes or review together or look over each other's. It felt like a lapse, like an inexcusable lapse in terms of composition. So I hear that note. I feel your complaint, but also uh, Javier Rodriguez in his, uh, I believe, taking acid and coloring some of these pages, a real bright spot as I was reading this. Like those, the I think two, maybe three books that he did were absolutely stunning to look at. And I enjoyed them profusely. The one that bugged me, Killer Croc appears in various places and looks like a completely different character in each book. Oh, yeah. The, the version of him in Gotham Knights is wild. Black Mask looks different from book to book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And some of them look really cool. And some of them, I don't know what was going on. The fact Paul Glacey draws him like a ghoul, like his fingers are skeletal. The Sean Phillips black mask looks awesome. I could have looked at that, but again, it's Sean Phillips. I could look at Sean Phillips art all day long, but it's insane how 
so much of this kind of felt like we're just gonna do what we need to do and the fact that this thing goes on and it's got a big cast at the beginning they kill all these characters and then they keep adding more characters scarecrow shows up at the end okay what the fuck when did scarecrow become the hulk what the fuck happened in the final issue where <laughs> Scarecrow suddenly hulks out and it takes the entire bat? Like, what the fuck ah, was that? That look, look, look. When you when you burn the Hulk, or excuse me, when you burn Scarecrow with uh, with lasers, he turns into the Hulk. Every goddamn kindergartner knows that. I don't know what your fucking problem is there, Josh. That, my friends, is the Scare Beast. That was an arc of Batman in between Broken City, the Azarello and Rizzo arc, and this, where it was Judd Winnick and Dustin Wynn, I believe. The Scarecrow was exposed to something by the, like the Penguin, he, he screwed over Penguin, or he was involved with Penguin, and Penguin infected him I think it was right. Yeah, it was 626 to 630. So it was right before this. I have never more needed an editor's note on a page in my life. <laughs> well, the, what, the, the fact that the scarecrow suddenly hulks out. Yeah, that was a and it introduced a new sort of female scarecrow analog analog called Fright. And don't like it was not good. And Fright has been completely forgotten. And after Infinite Crisis, it was like, yeah, we're never going to mention the Scare Beast again. I had forgotten about the Scare Beast until he hulks a new Scare Beast out. I'm like, oh, fuck. I forgot about this train wreck of a concept. Of all the characters that turned into a Hulk, it is not the Scarecrow. Sounds like something to throw in with our uh, Batman and Superman versus Vampires and Werewolves Part 2 episode. <sighs> I don't know. Looking through some of my last notes, uh, you know, the Black Mask Killing Orpheus, bad. Barbara, out of character. You'd mentioned a couple of them out of character. Um, Bill Willingham should not be writing things in Spanglish. That's a bad. Or, or writing kids uh, or perhaps writing anything. <laughs> See, and here's, I think a lot of the places where the Bill Willingham, and, and this is weird because I love the Bill Willingham Robin issues. The Bill Willingham Batman issues that finish up Act 2 and Act 3 are some of the most are probably two of the most problematic issues in the whole thing here. I loved the art in the Batgirl ones and not just the character art, but the layouts. I thought in 57, the layouts that they were doing as Barbara realizes that black mask is coming for the watchtower, where you start seeing the backgrounds were just fucking pro level from the artist on that one who I had had Huddleston. It was one of those where when I saw it, I had to immediately go back and like, like go through the panels and read them again because it was just so, so well masterfully done. Big, I like Mike Huddleston as an artist a lot and he does a great job. He did a run on Harley Quinn with A.J. Lieberman who wrote the Gotham Knights issues of this that I remember it being pretty good and it's gorgeous. I and mean, he's a, a great artist. Good art across this whole crossover still couldn't have saved it. And the fact that this ends with Black Mask and not Batman, I, I, I sit back and I'm like, is that a 
good ending or a bad? Because in the end, Black Mask is the one who wins here. And that's the thing that's really obnoxious. This is a 25-part story. Our hero loses. Batman you know, as someone who reads a lot of X-Men, I'm used to that. Like, that doesn't... The X-Men lose all the fucking time. Like, all, there was a solid 12, 14 years before, like, Hoxpox where the X-Men didn't win at all. Like, they just lose constantly, so... But that's sort of built into the X-Men's DNA. This is Batman. If you ever go to the website TV Tropes, this whole story is what's called the Batman Gambit, where you prep out everything and you count on everyone acting a certain way. But if they don't, your plot completely goes off the rails. And this is a story that typifies that because this is completely a case where, oh, the one thing that I had that this required didn't have it planned. Oops. And I, this I, is why a war game is not like one person gaming out stuff. It is individuals acting together in concert to imagine what's going to happen. Like you have to have some kind of unpredictability for a war game to succeed as what it's supposed to do. Like this is, should have been an exercise if we're again going to use that word or that term, this should have been an exercise where Batman was confronted with the idea of, oh, what if Orpheus dies, right? You know, the, the person gaming Orpheus rolls his D20 and it's like, oh, fuck, I just died. Okay, what's your response, Batman? That's, that's the whole idea here. And that's why, again, to me, as a central concept, this doesn't work. Oh. And a lot of the losses Batman takes through it feel unearned. When we're going back to that Batman issue that wraps up Act 2, that Black Mask slaps some putty on his face and starts pretending to be Orpheus. And Batman is none that, like, he's just Batman and him alone in a room talking. We expect Batman to be like the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock picking up on, like, 37 different little cues that everyone else would have missed as to, like, why this isn't actually Orpheus. And it felt so off. You know, you guys had mentioned, uh, Will had mentioned the inclusion of Tarantula and her taking over one of the local gangs in this. And the fact that after Orpheus dies and Batman literally already on his team has someone else running a major part of the gangs in the city, but can't figure out how to adapt or just or who else to put in charge. Like it's all just gone to shit because Orpheus died. I was expecting that tarantula to build up and her have to be like the piece he moves in to replace Orpheus. And then it just never happened. It was just a bewildered Batman who had nowhere to go because kept saying over and over, everything relied on Orpheus. It felt very un-Batman and, and the, the wins over him felt unearned because of that. Why didn't he just step in his matches Malone? He's popping up in different places as matches Malone. Why doesn't he just start doing stuff as matches Malone? Plus, then we'd get the mustache. Everyone loves the mustache. Yes. There's a lot here that doesn't work and is characters acting a certain way to forward a plot. And the plot was, we want to kill Stephanie Brown. I don't want to lay... This feels like a cheap shot, but... The whole thing with Stephanie feels a lot like the things you often would hear about Dan Didio and his dislike of sidekicks. I kind of like, was this old Didio just wanted to get rid of another sidekick that pisses him off? You mean like how every time Didio got divorced, all the superheroes had to get divorced? <laughs> Stuff like ah! that, yeah. 
anybody have any final notes? Because I knew this was going to take up most of the episode, but we're well on our way here. I'll say that the the new status quo that this lands on appeals to me in terms of a back to basics approach to Batman. You read the epilogue and Bruce is like, well, the police are against us. All of the sidekicks have left town. We're having to do stuff like we did stuff in the old days. I have learned and I'm going to be better at this. And, you know, what does that mean moving forward? It's a lot better approach than what we've seen most recently of, oh, Batman lost all of his money and that's not really affecting him in any material way. So I liked kind of this soft reboot at the end of the story. But, you know, we didn't even talk about that one major story point then. So Will's just referencing there that Batman pulls on a trump card that he's been sitting on for his entire career of like, if all goes to hell and you need an army, literally going out to the police, like, you know, you can trust me this one time, like work for like, do this my way. And then it all goes to fucking shit, which is a really like, talk about like a fascinating catalyst for a Batman story or stories like Will's saying, like an interesting, like to lead into the status quo, but really kind of gets lost amidst all of the black mask stuff of the second half of this story. It could have been better to address the fact that so much of that would have depended on him having Jim Gordon in the office. And with Gordon retired and Aikens, who was never a big fan of Batman as commissioner, that could have been teased out a little more. I mean, yeah, you see Aikens and Bruce not getting along, but the ramifications of that could have been something Bruce considered. This also deals with that somewhat goofy concept that came out of the end of Zero Hour, where Batman is considered an urban legend again, which was always like, but he's on the Justice League. He was on the Justice League International, which was a UN supported. There are like, he was at the UN. How is he suddenly an urban legend? That always bugged me because like yeah he can be a man of mystery but there are photos of him with the justice league my final point and this is me just having a goofy moment that i that i was kind of like do it bugged do it a little when at the very end or the very beginning of act three as quote-unquote orpheus gathers all the gangs his physical presence the way he is illustrated is I swear to God, photo referenced from the Warriors. It's Cyrus from the Warriors at the beginning when he's got the gangs gathered. Can you dig it? It is that posture. Wow, they're riffing on the Warriors. He's gathering the gangs and holy crap. That was not something I expected to see in this freaking crossover. Okay, I think that's that that's that's all I got. That means it's time to finally put war games on the big board. We currently are at 114 stories on our big board. Story number one is still Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Down at 25 is Tower of Babel from JLA 43 to 46. At number 50, we have The Untold Legend of the Batman. 
At number 69 for the children, we've got Blades from Legends of the Dark Knight. Uh, Number 75 is Batman Overdrive, the original graphic novel for younger readers. At number 100 is Batman Master of the Future, the sequel to Gotham by Gaslight. And down at the bottom, at number 114, is White Knight. Matt, I'm going to say, and this this touched my heart, I think this is the first time you called it the big board. I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm so happy. It is time. That is the, the I think that's that, that that is the official. That is the official. We're down near the bottom. If this had been half the length, or if it had found you know, you, you all of you out there and listen to land who haven't read this, you don't know the amount of stuff we didn't talk about. There was whole plots involving the penguin, there were all manner of the different mobs. We could have this whoa. Boy, we could have gone on for a while on this one. Oh, the, um, the betrayals with uh, the the Russians and the different mob bosses getting hit and the inner battles for who's taking control of each family. Selena and Cassandra's various hunts for spoiler. Selena and Zeiss, all the stuff. Oh, all the- Zeiss, we didn't even mention Zeiss. Knows all of the useless stuff involving Hush and Prometheus and black mask we didn't really i mean we talked about how awful problematic and awful black mask is we barely mentioned black mask storming oracle's clock tower there was a lot of book here all right opening bid okay holy terror at 93 how you feel above or below below holy terror holy terror is a wild swing but I think Holy Terror does a lot in its weird little place. So if Holy Terror had been 25 issues, maybe you'd reconsider? Yes. Yes. (laughs) But I think Holy Terror tells its story and it is streamlined and it is crazy. Generally speaking, rereadability is something I factor into these, but rereading war games would be such a herculean task just due to its length that i have to at least factor out rereadability a little here all right so i'm gonna say it's got to be above gotham by gaslight right this cannot fall into the things that i actively hated portion of the of uh, of the list see i can see that but the problem is there is actively problematic stuff in here which is usually reserved for that lowest tier. But then again, we have Beware of Poison Ivy, which is above Gotham by Gaslight, and that had various problematic elements to it. And we actually have problematic stuff earlier up with stuff like Shaman. So, all right, you might even be able to argue me above Holy Terror. You can't argue me above Shaman, which was uh, the last time Josh was here. But you picked that one, not me. I did. That one's on me. What do you think right above Gotham by Gaslight at 103? That would put it below that terrible two-part Scarecrow story in 523 and 524 and admittedly above stuff like Case of the Chemical Syndicate, that really bad Superman stuff we've read, above Blue, the Gray, the Bat, above Earth One, Volume One. 
So the bad scarecrow story obviously has bad, but does it have, because there's so much in this, there's long stretches of good art. There are good parts to this. Does the two-part scarecrow have good? That's a valid point. The good in that scarecrow story is fairly drowned out and is dispersed. I don't know that you're that much higher than the Scarecrow story. Because above that, you've got Days of Rage, that Huntress story, which also has some serious race problems with, you know, (laughs) white guys writing about, quote unquote, inner city in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, and it's the same problem, too. Like white guys trying to write street gangs. I, I can see it beating Scarecrow. I don't know if it beats Days of Rage, though. Because that was only three issues. Yeah, I think I think it might beat Scarecrow. I think it is actually our new 102. Works for me. I am just going to mark that as crossover because there is no way I'm going to be able to fit all of that description of all the parts onto the big list on Comics XF. That is the big list. Our own personal version here is the big one. I have it down as the interminable saga of war games at 102. Not bad. I was figuring somewhere between Holy Terror and um, Gotham by Gaslight. Will has been, Will is, the more Will seems to be uh, reminiscing on Holy Terror, the more he seems to like it. <laughs> I don't know that that's going to be the case for war games. So, again, look, Holy Terror is, you know, we talked about it last week, is something that, as time goes on, I think we have more of a fondness for because it's just so stupid. Like, it's just like, yeah, let's take this weird part of British history and let's do a what if and, you know, let's put Batman as this figure in the Anglican church and it's all in the future and it's high tech and it's like, just see what happens. Like, it's it's bonkers. Like, trying to just explain Holy Terror takes 20 minutes and it's does it succeed? Absolutely not. But God bless him for trying. Not all the comics I want to read are good. Like I, I had this with my <laughs> wife the other day. She was looking at something I ordered and she's like, why? And I'm like, sometimes I like stupid comics. Like they don't all have to be brilliant. Sometimes There's... I want to read the stupid Absolutely. ones. So our next story, and w- these will be considerably shorter in discussion than that, is Night of the Penguin. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 824. The writer is Paul Dini, with pencils by Don Kramer, inks by Wayne Foucher, colors by Jared K. Fletcher, edited by Pete Tomasi and Michael Seglane, cover date of December of 06. It's opening night at the new Iceberg Lounge, and all of Gotham's wealthiest are there. Penguin is having a good night, and even seems to be going straight, until the house starts to lose. Batman must investigate mysterious Mr. Zzz and find out how he's beating the house before Penguin takes matters into his own hands. So I did some research on this one, and it turns out that internally, this story had uh, had a, had a title that you know didn't necessarily make the press. But this was Paul Dini's idea. It's uh, uh, Detective Comics. Why won't Paris Hilton fuck me? This is another one of those stories, and this has come up a couple of times since we read Dark Knight. I would have liked this more had I not known Paul Dini's misogyny. This story is really bad in parts and like the the idea that bruce wayne is dating this clear like joke on paris hilton and it's just this superficial 
just Bruce yeah, she's Wayne not even, did not he, want to be dating her. It says it in the issue. Like Alfred chose this one for him, and he's like, "I'm gonna have to screen Alfred's choices from now on." Yeah, like, and it's just portrayed as a superficial, just nothing joke of a character. Penguin's got this line about Batwoman being hot that's just oddly out of place for him. And of course, and, and this is the part where I had to. Uh, I had to message Matt to ask if he was fucking with me, fucking with me specifically, uh, because Deanie brings in Zatanna in this issue for no real reason. This is this is all of Deanie's fascinations and fetishes and misogyny just rolled up into one issue. And again, had I not known his his personal defects, I could have enjoyed this, but knowing the stuff that I know, this is, this was not a fun read. Oh, I was not thinking of any of that. I had a lot of fun with this. I was excited from the beginning to see that Wayne Foucher was inking this. Wayne Foucher was an inker that worked on Impulse with Mark Wade and Humberto Ramos for the first couple of years and was one of the first inkers that like I kind of knew by name and knew as a kid and always get excited when I see his name on things. I thought the commentary on capitalism fucking slapped. I had a lot of fun with that. I'm about two seasons in watching Gotham right now. And I thought that there was some fun. Now, even though this clearly predates Gotham, the Riddler Penguin uh, dynamic was a little reminiscent to me. I love the use of Lois. I know Matt's mentioned before, Lois is one of the few characters that can hold the scene across from Bruce. There were a bunch of little things in a kind of circa Infinite Crisis era DC comic, which is a an era that is a very strong cohesive era in like DCU, like comics wide, like line wide, things were really strong around here. And going back and reading this as a first time read for a one-off and, and not at all, I was not at all thinking about, um, I was not putting this in context with, you know, the, the Dark Knight True Batman story, um, just kind of as like a goofy it's a blessed fun, life josh it really as, is as a goofy fun <laughs> epilogue to war games i i i had fun with it right because that's the thing this is the penguins return to gotham after he gets run out on a rail in war games he does not appear in gotham again until this story he pops up in bloodhaven briefly but he's gone until this story i found fell somewhere i think in between the two of you because i Saw like in my notes at one point when the Paris Hilton analog shows up, my notes say, I wish I never read Dark Knight. (laughs) But when that character wasn't on the page, I was able to enjoy the Penguin and the Riddler dynamic, the Penguin's excitement at being able to do this and at being able to put one over. And then these two random cheap thugs taking the Penguin out. And what it turns out Penguin's whole shtick is like, yeah, I went straight after I ripped off every mug in Gotham that I possibly could to get my fortune. Wah, wah, wah. Running a casino is hard. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I, I think it does a really good job of establishing a new status quo for Penguin and a status quo that I like. I would love to see Penguin be treated in the same way that Lex Luthor is treated in the Superman books as an antagonist rather than a villain as this character that's regularly there and 
is often and, and importantly not a monster as you as you frequently bring up yes i don't want webbed hands and stuffing raw fish into his face i think penguin is most interesting when he is a foil for bruce wayne that bruce wayne is gotham old money that is respected and theoretically still has his money or even now when he's fallen and doesn't have his money he is still looked on as gotham's first son while the cobblepots are the gotham money that lost their money and are now looked down upon by gotham society and bruce could care less about gotham society and is accepted by it while penguin wants nothing more than to be accepted by it and nobody will give him the time of day I love the dynamic that we get in this on Penguin and Bruce, which is so different from any other Bat villain who would see Bruce Wayne as like a target or someone to rob or someone to extort. And Penguin is just so desperately geeky wanting him to like, like, oh, I'm so happy you're here. They like desperate for Bruce's approval on this. And I liked, you know, in Status Quo, I really liked the opening scene with Batman captured. There was one little part that brought me a lot of joy because it was so clearly done after the fact. But after Batman tells him to drain the pool and Penguin reaches over and grabs a lever, they hastily wrote on the box where the lever is pool drain. And it's it's just completely out of like line and flush with the rest of the drawing. Like someone after the fact was like just labeled that and, and it just cracked me up. No, I love that. It had this kind of, Lex Luthor feel of this is my legitimate business. I've done nothing wrong. Technically, you broke into here. You assaulted my guards. You know, wah, it, wah. yeah, it, it, it had a, a different kind of it had a, a more fun spin and, and set up for it that that I enjoyed. Because, again, yes, I had completely forgotten about the um, the thing from Dark Knight that makes the. Um, the drunk Paris Hilton popping in and out a little problematic, but the rest of it I thought was a lot of fun. I also like this era of Riddler, the reformed Riddler that Dini wrote that was eventually just sort of shuffled under the rug, which is a shame because I liked this Riddler also in that role as recurring antagonist rather than villain, where he's now a consulting detective and is just trying to prove that he's smarter than Batman by beating Batman at his own game. I think that's a neat concept for Riddler. And we don't get a lot of it here, but we'll eventually do the other Dini Riddler stories from this era. This also forms the bridge between some of the stuff that we saw in Trust. This is the first appearance of Ivar Locius, the magician who the Joker impersonates in Trust. So, Will, you can't at the very least appreciate the fact that Dini figured out a way to get Batman to call someone Wiener. Well, yeah, I can appreciate that, of course. It would have been better if it was I.C. Wiener, but, you know, whatever. Whatever. The Zatanna cameo is gratuitous. No argument there. And neither Little Italy or Mr. Z are particularly interesting characters. I think they might pop up one more time during Dini's run. But Dini created a bunch of sort of fun little villains during this run with the carpenter and the broker, but Mr. Z and little Italy are not particularly memorable, but they served a purpose of sort of putting, you know, having someone to put the penguin on notice. 
Batman returning the money to Penguin at the end has a little tiny bit of that Batman returning the dress to Harley that you love so much. That is true. That, yes, I can. And because, you know, he doesn't have a reason to keep it. There, there's one reference to aces and eights, which I was like, okay, you're really, we're going to dead man's hand riff here. Okay. Also, quick question. I didn't do any research to argue this point one way or another, but I don't think you can really count cards in poker. I think that was, I, I don't know if you can, but I mean, Dini did hand wave that away by saying like, no one can count par- cards in poker. That's what makes it so amazing. Blackjack is typically what you count cards in. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, this with poker, it's more about reading people than it is. Yeah. Yeah, that is an odd, especially when you're, it's in a casino. You could have just done blackjack. I don't know why you needed to do counting cards in poker. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's, Zatanna is talking about the magician, right? In his last like television special. In the last one, he broke a Vegas casino just by counting cards in a poker game. That does not strike me as being right, but that's just a little thing. Yeah, I've always I've always looked at the two games as blackjack, you play the cards, poker, you play the people. Anyway, sorry for that. No, no. The art is nice throughout. Don Kramer does a good job in all of these, the Dini written stories that he did the art for. I still like the design on Lucius. I've got to imagine that Dini had that the Joker turn in trust already planned because he Lucius looks build wise and such just enough like the joker even early on that you could see him later impersonating him and there's the line at the end about how interesting the mindset of these villains are it's setting up trust really well right here i mean trust and batman is- says don't do that the, you're gonna fuck up yeah. i mean trust is nine issues later so i got to imagine dean had all of that more or less planned i don't think there's much more to say on this one uh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 824 on the big board. All right. This is above War Games. You can't put this below War Games. Uh, true. What about Dark Knight? Dark Knight is currently at 80. Okay. Do you feel like this goes above Dark Knight? To me, that an- that question is answered by another question. Does 824 have anything to say? Because Dark Knight had a lot to say. A lot of it was bad. But is this meaningful? Is this substantive? And maybe for this idea of bringing Penguin back to Gotham, establishing the Penguin as a quote-unquote legitimate businessman, maybe I could see it going above Dark Knight, but this is still probably not, for me, it's not making it out of the 70s. Okay. Mad Men Across the Water is only a couple spots above that. That's another one that's more fun than important. It's that's two true. issues instead of one. Very true. Yeah. I think this does more than Mad Men Across the Water, which is fun, but does really nothing other than give us an excuse to have a softball game between argument mates and black gay prisoners, which while fun, nothing comes of that story ever. It's just there. So I think it probably beats Mad Men Across the Water. 
I do not think it beats Everyone Loves Ivy at 74. Because because of the art. Because of the art. The Mikkel Janine art. Absolutely. And because while I don't like it, it was trying to set stuff up for Heroes in Crisis and trying to tell it. And, <laughs> and was, you know, Tom King playing on his normal... I need to talk about PTSD in some way or another, because that is what most of my stories are about. Better or worse than overdrive. I think overdrive has some stuff. I'm not in love with the way Bruce treats Alfred, but I think the way Alfred treats Bruce is so true to who Alfred Pennyworth is. I think this probably falls below Overdrive, but above Death Cast the Deciding Vote, which is also just wild. All right, that makes it our new number 76. 76. Our final story of the night is The Little Red Book. This is Batman Adventures, Volume 1, Number 9. The writer is Kelly Puckett, pencils by Mike Parabek, inks by Rick Burchett, colors by Rick Taylor, letters by Tim Harkins, and edited by Scott Peterson with a cover date of June of 1993. Rupert Thorne is finally on trial, but a key piece of evidence, a ledger with all of Thorne's dirty dealings, has been stolen. Can Batman retrieve it in time? This is one of the first volume of Batman the Animated Series tie-ins. We've covered a couple of annuals from this series, but I do not believe we've actually covered an issue of the first volume of Batman Adventures. These are really, really fun and really well illustrated. They're all built in the three act structure. Like you see the act breaks with titles, which is a fun trope of these books. I like this story a lot. I love this series a lot. So this, I thought now I chose war games. Matt rounded it out with the um, DE story and Batman adventures. So these were first time reads for me. I was surprisingly disappointed in this. I thought it was kind of a nothing-ish story. Ah, the trifle argument. Yeah, uh, and I had some issues with the art a little because for art, though, it's so reminiscent of the TV series. The TV show does so much with shadows, and these were this issue at least because i haven't read all of these i've read some spots of of the adventures and the batman and robin adventures some of the different ones but um felt very like well lit and flat like there felt like there was minimal shading and shadows to me which just seemed a little it just made it a little off not right from that like tv series reference in not necessarily my defense but this series is my comfort read comic the most fun thing about it is because of the art being so similar is that you hear all of the voices from the TV show as you read it, which was delightful. You seem contemplative, Will. Well, I'm just, I think, I'm just thinking, right? I got to break the tie. Like Joshua, this was a first read for me and I'm going to have to agree with him. I'm going to have to, going to have to violate the, the co-host bro code. Um, Fair. I, I thought this again, this was just, this was, it's a car chase with a kind of like a little bookend at the, at the end. And I, so will, I think you're the legal expert on the show, right? Ha <laughs> ha. I, I pretend to be absolutely so evidence gained 
because a vigilante broke into the defendant's home, assaulted the defendant and a bunch of his employees, and then stole the evidence. Is that typically admissible in court? Uh, I would say that uh, if Batman is acting at the behest of the police here, that's no, that's not going to work. But I, I didn't mind the substance. I didn't mind the tone. The The art is fun for all the reasons we've said, but it's just something about opening on this cold and then you're just sort of expected to get invested in the story in the span of, you know, 20 you know 22 23 pages it just it just didn't work for me yeah you you said it was a three-act structure and i mean they do say act one act two act three but it's not really if they didn't break it up like that you wouldn't say that this was like a you know a miniature three-act play like it's basically just the chase after the book and again there's nothing problematic unless you know i missed or oversaw like there's it's but yeah it is just thin I think as a story in terms of what it what it does it's it's really just kind of like a singular chase after this book if you had given me that first page of Harvey and you know Gordon talking about how important the book is I think I would have enjoyed this like I don't know 50 percent more but just getting thrown right there into the car chases I don't know rubbed me the wrong way Sorry, Matt. No, it's, uh, I, I don't, it's, hey, I was able to take your, the fact that Blades is down at 69. I can, <laughs> I can take this. I don't have any particular investment in this story. If we continue to do this series and it continues to fall quite so low, I might get more upset when we get to some of the other stories in it that are more resonant to me. Issue eight, uh, issues 10, 20, and 30. Those ones stick in my head more than this one. I just remembered that this one, oh yeah, I remember this being a gangster story. And after all of that other talk, we needed something that was shorter. So that's why I went with this one. What's that other story where a mobster's secret book is so integral? Year three, where Tony ah. Zuko, the, the mob let Tony Zuko write down all of the evil shit they were doing for years. Gotham mobsters, you got to stop taking notes on your criminal conspiracies. Bad idea. I'm looking at the list. This is completely off topic here. But just looking at the list, I just realized that at some point in the near future, favorite things will be number 69. And that's got to be a very exciting day for Will. We're getting there. Oh, yeah. 65. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be. We got some episodes coming up with some some top of the near the top of the list material coming. So that, that is, is not as far away as one might think. That's when you just cancel the show, right? Favorite things at 69 and we're done. Put a bow on it. I might need a new co-host. That might be your Will's mic drop moment. Nah, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. Oh, no, no, no. I think, I think the really good one's going to be super heavy at 69. <laughs> We still have some more material for that. I, you know, it's interesting you said this. I'm looking at my own notes. And my notes on this are very thin. I mean, a lot of this is quiet. A lot of this is Bruce sneaking into the mansion. So there isn't a ton of dialogue in this story. I give credit for that. I love oh. well done silent issues. 
when writers can trust the artist to tell the story without as many of their words, um, good things often happen. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm saying that it does not. Discussing silent comics on a podcast is probably not the easiest thing to do. You can say, oh, I like the art or I don't like the art, but that's about it because otherwise you're just narrating. I do like, even if, while I understand, I can see where you're coming from with the shading stuff, Parabek's sense of motion is really strong. As Batman is moving, as Batman is fighting, you get a really good continuity of panels and the way his Batman moves is cool. Parabek, who passed tragically young he did this he did a great justice society series that only ran 10 issues and uh the fly from impact comics when dc licensed the red circle heroes from archie are the things that pop to mind when i think of mike parabek and he did most of this run yeah, there's a great motion one where batman jumps over the car that is very nicely done and and again, the end is cute. There's a little bit with Jim Gordon and Bruce Wayne as Bruce is waiting for Harvey Dent, quote unquote, as Bruce says he's doing. That's an amusing little bow on the end of this. Very much that wah, wah sort of end of a story. We got anything else? I don't think so. Well, that means it's time to put Batman Adventures number nine on the big board. I think this falls possibly somewhere in between the two from we've already done tonight. Son of the demon country seems about right. Okay. I mean, that was just Rambo. I would probably put it a little below that, but not by much. Because you got at 85, you've got Luthor, you're driving me sane which is another one-off little trifle for all of the faults that we saw in it. Death in the family does more than this story. Uh, yes, I would agree with that. So I think the question is, does it go above or below Luthor? You're driving me sane. I'll let you make the call. It's your darling. Kill it or keep it. Josh, your thought. Luther, you're driving me sane is one of the few that I did not read. So it's one of the ones on here that I only have your opinion on. So I definitely feel looking at, you know, some of the lists around it, it doesn't have the problematic parts of Shaman. It's not as good as Club of Heroes. So you're, you're right in the spot. Um, but I didn't read Joker, so, or the I th- Luther Joker. So I think we're going to do, Lu- I think Luthor, I think this is our new 86. I think Luthor, you're driving me saying goes above it because for all of the, stuff there this is much less of a story than luther you're driving me sane matt making the tough choices tonight okay that does it for the night josh thank you as ever for supporting us for coming on the show where can people follow you online if you so wish to be followed oh you can follow me on twitter at asleep at the wheel w-e-i-l Josh, thank you one more time. And that does it. Uh, next week, Jason Todd Tierbacker, Kyle Still, has made his pick. And so we are going to be reading Act One of Nightfall, The Breaking of the Bat, along with two of the stories that led into one of the most important bat events of all time. 
We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names. That's a mouthful, June. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum. <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, Christian Smith, and John Wickham for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music, and Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLast1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>